It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. Here's a challenge for you. Decide to become a comedian at the age of 63, right after years of difficulties and pain. If you can do that, then you must be my guest, comedian and motivational speaker Guy Fezenden, performing in the Delirious Comedy Club at the Downtown Grand. For ticket information, go to deliriouscomedyclub.com. And for everything about Guy Fezenden, go to guyfezenden.com. And you can follow him on Instagram and Facebook. And Guy, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. So you have decided to enter a life of comedy, a career of comedy, and yet, as I mentioned in the opening, you're 63, which, you know, a lot of comedians got a late start. I'm thinking of Rodney Dangerfield as an example. He didn't really hit it big until he was later on in years, but you had a whole other life before comedy. What were you doing? I was being a dad. I was pursuing a career. I lived in New York where everything is all about the you know, type A's and getting to the top of the mountain and the mountain is measured in money. I started a tech company. I ran that for 17 years. It was a blast. I, I uh, just had the time of my life. And then everything kind of came crashing down. And after a long period of reevaluation, remarriage, relocating, re-everything, when you're reinventing yourself, then I figured I've been through so many tears, so much pain, so many Christmases and psychiatric hospitals that I'd like to put a little more laughter in the world. I'd like to laugh a little more myself. I personally want to be able to feel good and try and help other people who may be going through similar situations to be able to feel good themselves. So you had this epiphany and in essence, you became more empathetic by wanting to share your pain and also feel other people's pain and help out with humor. Would that be a fair summation? I know it's a brief one. We all have a perspective on life. And the perspective on life is when we're standing tall and we're looking over everybody and we're great and we're fantastic. And then life comes and kicks you in the stomach and you're doubled over and your perspective becomes entirely different and you change as a person. So I was that prototypical, you know, jump on the six o'clock train in the morning and go tear your world apart and come home at eight o'clock at night until I realized that that's not the measurement of what life should be for me, at least, and for many other people, I think, as well. So I decided, let's do this different. I run a not-for-profit organization during the day that helps 3,000 people a month who are mentally ill to be able to live better lives. I try and bring a little bit of humor to the world, and I try and help others. How did you decide the comedy part? Because you could certainly affect change just by your nonprofit. What's the name of the nonprofit? We should share that with people. It's called Choice, Choice of New Rochelle. It's in uh, New York, uh, Westchester, the Bronx, a bunch of other counties. And the mission is to help people who have a severe mental or physical disability and need that little bit of help. You know how the system kind of works against you. So when, when you go in for Social Security, your automatic answer is no for Social Security disability, right? Automatically. That's just the way it works. And 80% of people say, well, okay, I tried. 
And the people that we like to work, that work with us, we go back in, we advocate, maybe we have to get a lawyer or whatever, but we get a very different outcome. And that helps people to be able to have a predictable income, which means they don't have to commit crimes, which means they have a place to live, which means they have, you know, food security and, and, and a bunch of other things. So, so it's a really important thing. But the question that you asked me was, how did I get into comedy? I want to go back, though, because of what you said. Have you thought about, because you're now based in Las Vegas, although you travel, of starting something similar for the Las Vegas area? or the state of Nevada? Perhaps. It's a, it, it, it's a very different state than the state of New York. And there's, there's pools of money in New York, in grants and other philanthropic areas that are unique to New York to help people to be able to move forward that don't really exist in Nevada to the same extent. Okay, so fair it's enough, fair much enough. more of an uphill climb. Sure. Well, the, the fact that you're doing it anywhere is the important thing, and you're helping that many thousands of people, as you said. But to my question and to your about answer before I interrupted you with a, a revised question, the comedy part, it's a big leap from having tragedy in your life, deciding to go a different way, starting the nonprofit, having an impact on people's lives, and then that extra piece, which is comedy. So how did you decide to make that part of your life and part of your career? And also, how did you get started with it once you decided that was the road you wanted to go now? About four years ago, I had a bunch of surgeries, nothing tremendously serious, but enough to put a little scare into me. And it made me realize that I'm mortal. You know, you don't realize that in your 20s and 30s, and you try and deny it in your 40s and your 50s. And then in your 60s, it kind of hits you right between the eyes. And I realized that as, as time compresses for me to be able to do the things that I really would like to try to do, rather than live in a you know, lather, rinse, repeat kind of a world. Uh, I wanted to do something different. And and I had always thought that I had the ability to make people laugh. Making a couple of people laugh at dinner is very, very different than getting, you know, four laughs per minute for 30 to 40 minutes. And I didn't realize that at the time either. But it was uh, basically it was a bucket list and I wasn't going to die. And I wanted to pursue that. So I did a Google search. I found the Las Vegas Comedy Institute, which was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. It's run by a gentleman by the name of Don Barnhart. And he also owned, at the time, Jokesters, which was performing nightly at the D. So what Don would do is he would go through the class and you would do a showcase at the end. And that was that. I thought, wow, that would be a that would be a cool bucket list thing to be able to do. Just take the class, put on the big boy pants, do a showcase, seven minutes, and I'm out. And then at the end, he invites a few people to actually come up and perform a set on a professional stage at Jokesters. And I was talking to two other more experienced people. He invited them, and then he looked at me, and he's such a nice guy. He didn't want to leave me hanging. So he said, well, how about you two? Uh, <laughs> and I went. And I thought it was abysmal. It was horrific. It was exactly what everybody else would tell you their first time on stage was like. But for some reason, he invited me back. And then he invited me back and I took some more classes. And here we are, you know, three years later, one year off with the pandemic. And I'm blessed to be the house MC for Delirious Comedy Club, which is also another club that he owns. And I have the privilege of being able to do eight to 12 shows a week. And it's been a godsend. It's been just wonderful. And I'm so grateful to him. I'm so grateful that I did a Google search. 
and that it actually turned something up that wasn't a scam, you know? You took the first step. Did you? It's a scary thing. Yeah, you know, no, the most, no, most no experienced comics have forgotten. Yes, no doubt about it. When you finished the first set and you thought you were horrible and miserable, as you said, when he invited you back, were you reluctant or afraid? Or did you say, well, great, I'll be able to improve a little bit? I was terrified. And I'd done public speaking before. I had a radio show for four years that I did on the side about mental health. So I'm, I wasn't unfamiliar with a microphone, but it's, it's just night and day different than anything else you're ever going to do when it's you and a microphone in an empty room and a bunch of people saying, go ahead, try and make me laugh. How long did it take you to feel comfortable on stage? Or do you still feel uncomfortable on stage once you got going and you were able to do it day after day or night after night? I, I think it, it probably took several hundred shows, maybe a year before. The key is to don't be afraid of the audience. And I was afraid of the audience. I was afraid of the heckler. I was afraid of the bad response. I was afraid of being outed as a fraud. The clubs, jokesters and delirious. Don is a lifetime comedian. It's a, it's a comedy club that's owned by a comedian. So people flock to it. You know, George Wallace, when he's in town, is a good friend of Don's. He'll pop in. He'll, he'll just, you know, do 20 minutes. So there's amazing talent that comes through the doors every week. And I had to drive home having opened for these amazing people and seeing the chasm <laughs> between me and them. And I was so pissed off every night. I'm slamming the <laughs> steering wheel about, damn it, what's wrong with me? I'm 65 years old. Why am I doing this? <laughs> but you kept doing it. But I kept doing it. Yeah. When you, yeah because gonna... after you've slogged through the swamps for a year of, of mediocrity and poor performances, and, or what I view to be poor performances, and, and comparing yourself to people who have done it for a lifetime, after you've done that year and you start to see the glimmer of improvement and, and you kind of integrate that into your performance and, and things start to get better, yeah, why would you want to stop? Did you record the first show you did when he invited you on stage to perform? Did you record that so you could see, look at it, well, not objectively, because you're, you're never objective about yourself, but were you able to record it, either video or audio, and, and then listen or watch it? Uh, no, but I have the sh first showcase that I did that was even before that. And every time I get a little bit full of myself, I just put it back on and go, oh, okay. <laughs> Remember, this is where we were in the beginning. Now, given your background and what you talked about in terms of, you know, as I mentioned in the opening as well, the years of, of uh, heartache, and you can expand on that if you if feel comfortable to do so. But does your humor reflect your history or is your humor more in a different direction? No, it's, it's, it's more of my life today than my life back then. I do have a bit that I do, but it's not very good because in, in order to be able to, to write the bit and bear your soul, you really got to tear yourself open. And they say that the pain plus time equals funny. And even though it's been 20 years, the time isn't right yet. I can't open myself up without crying for three months without stopping. No, understood. When you decided to go down this road of comedy, was your wife, Stephanie, in favor of it, opposed to it, indifferent? What was her reaction? No, she's great. She, uh, she's been a great supporter of it. And if you don't have that kind of support at home, you're really screwed. And she has been fantastic. And she supports me and she comes out to shows. And 
And, and that's a key ingredient because if you have conflict at home about it, you're never going to be able to get on stage and be comfortable. You're just going to feel guilty all the time. So it really has to be collaborative. Is she, what's the word? Is she true with you in the sense of giving you a critique of your performance or does she just praise you? She's a therapist. So she can be very honest. She will, she will sugarcoat it a little bit, but she will be very honest when something's good and when something's not. And that helps me because I can, I can run some stuff past her and get an honest opinion before I try it up on stage. And that's the tricky part. You want to get an honest opinion. And so having a partner that can do that for you is great because you can't always rely on other people to give you an honest reaction. You may have friends who are good friends and they don't want to hurt your feelings. So let's say, oh, yes, you were hilarious on this and funny on that. And yes, I enjoyed the whole thing. When she might say to you, well, I liked most of it, but you know, your second joke wasn't as strong and maybe you should lead with that. And this topic isn't really that funny, et cetera. Right. Right. And, and if you go to other comics, it's a competitive world. They're going to set you up. Oh, yes. <laughs> hey, that's great. You should do that on stage right now. <laughs> then you go up on stage and you get crickets and you come off and they're like, geez, and you suck. Yes. <laughs> you have to learn that world. <laughs> that's true. And you're coming from a whole different world. So now you're in, in that world. Right. Do you spend a certain amount? I always like to talk to comedians about this. Do you spend a certain amount of time? writing new material, trying out new material, or are you comfortable with the body of material you have and then slowly add a few little things here and there? I try and write. Uh, I can't write every day just from physical time constraints, but I write every week and I try and bring new stuff to the stage every week where I'm blessed. I'm truly blessed because if I do eight shows a week, every week, that's 400 a year. So I have the luxury of being able to try things, you know, I can try it in one show, then I can try it different in the next. And, you know, as long as it doesn't take up too much time, if you have 15 minutes, you can't do a five minute chunk that's brand new, but you can do a minute and, and that's good because then you can kind of bleed it into your act. Makes sense. You know, even if you add a minute or two every week, that's, that's an hour a year. I asked you earlier whether you recorded that first time you were on stage. So I'm going to rephrase the question a little bit. Do you record your current set so you can go over it and critique yourself? Yes. Yeah, not every show, but I try and, and at least ca catch the Friday and Saturday shows because that's when you've got the best size audience and the best temperament audience so you can get a, you can get a better gauge of what works and what doesn't. If you have an audience that is listening and enjoying themselves, but they're not a laugh out loud audience, you don't get a real gauge on how you're doing. You know, it's more of a performance. But when it's interactive, as it is on the busier parts of the weekend, then that's a good thing to be able to see because the reaction will change in a noticeable way. You're making people laugh. So this may be, in a way, a personal question. But when was the last time you had a hearty laugh yourself? They, they come maybe once every couple of months. I'm not a laugh out loud guy. I'm one of the people who's in the performance who's sitting there listening attentively and going, oh, that was funny. Well, then you have entered the world of comedians. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Instead of laughing out loud, you're going, oh, yeah, that was a funny joke. I'm, I'm analyzing it. And uh, yeah, that was good. I like the construction. Yeah. I like the setup. I like the punchline. Yeah, that's good. But occasionally something comes in. It doesn't have to be from a performance situation. In other words, at the club, you may just be encountering something in life or watching something on television or something tickles your fancy and you just burst out laughing. 
And when you do that, do you find relief in terms of whether it's joy or less pain or something else that you can identify when that laughter comes? Oh, it's it's amazing. And it doesn't come often enough. And I wish I had better control over it to make it come more often. But that great release, oh my God, what a great feeling. I wish I could get at it more, but I guess I'm I'm more clinically oriented. So when I watch a movie, it's not about the movie. It's about watching how they made it. Same thing with comedy. It's not about the joke as much as everything that leads up to it and the performance aspect of it and the facial expressions and all that kind of stuff. So it's more, more science-based, more, more of an observer of life than a, a participant in life. So how do you avoid becoming clinical on stage? Because I'm listening to you now and you do have a little bit of that, what I call clinical voice or clinical approach. When you're on stage, how do you avoid that approach so that you can connect with the audience? You're a persona on stage. So regardless of how I'm feeling or what I'm doing, nobody cares. They paid to get a ticket. They came to laugh. And that's my job. And I have to be able to execute that to the best of my ability, regardless. And if you go up there and you make silly faces and, you know, tell some silly jokes and as an opener, you know, you've got to be all over the map. When you open, your obligation, it's been drilled into me. You're supposed to settle the crowd, let them relax a little bit, ease into the show, do a variety of different jokes. Some you know they're going to hate, some they're going to love. You do dirty, you do clean, you do smart, you do stupid, so that all the other comics can observe it and then tailor what they're going to do based on my successes and failures. And you're also warming up the crowd, too. Yeah. Yeah, you can do the same set as an opener and then the same set as the, in, in the sweet spot right before the headliner. And the reaction is going to be five times better to the sweet spot for the same jokes and the same delivery. It's just the way it is. Do you yeah. get a chance to interact with the crowd after the show? And if you do, do they give you feedback on your performance? Oh, we, we all stand by the door and say goodnight, which is a polite thing to do. And generally, they'll go up to the other comics that perform and go, you were great, you were great, you were great. And then they'll get to me. And, and, and you were funny, too. <laughs> so yeah, at least they gave you some recognition. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you were the first guy, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they've already forgotten you because they, they've already gone through the middle and the headliner. So now it's, uh, oh, yeah, you're the guy that started the show. I almost forgot about you, but you were funny. Yeah, that makes right. sense. And the interesting thing about Don Barnhart as a headliner is that he feels that any headliner has an obligation to make the audience forget everybody who came before him. And it's his residency. So he tears the room apart. We have a great time. And on the way out, they said, were you the bartender, the guy that took my ticket or the guy who showed me to my seat? Yeah, I was the guy that made you laugh. Okay. Well, I guess all of you are doing your part in this structure. Yeah, everybody's got a role. If it, if it made the most sense to just have a headliner walk out and do a cold start and then build from there, they would. It's easier. It's so much easier to book. But to bring in one or two or three other comics beforehand and, and kind of mix it up for the audience is respectful of the audience. And then the headliner comes out to a fully baked, fully warmed up crowd that's into it. And, and that's our job. Our job is to deliver the headliner, the best possible audience that he can have. When you're out and about on the road and 
you're doing motivational speaking, do you find that your experience performing in Las Vegas helps you either from a presentation point of view or just adding a little humor to the speech? Well, first off, not having to go for a punchline every you know, 12 to 15 seconds is such a blessing. Oh, it's such a relief, such a break. Uh, but, but yeah, once you've done stand-up, you don't have to fear anything in life. And when, when I'm going out and just doing public speaking things, I'm speaking about mental illness. And one of the secondary benefits that I've gotten out of doing the stand-up is mental illness is terrifying to people because if they don't have it, they know somebody in their immediate family or immediate circle that does. So when you start to talk about that, everybody's back goes up. And if you can add a little bit of humor to it, and everybody can kind of take a step back and calm down and, and realize, okay, this is a regular life thing that happens and we have to be able to address it that way. Then you're able to get your message through. You know, the last great stigma that we have in the world is about mental health. We, we used to have, you know, women's rights have been addressed. Gay rights have been addressed. HIV has been addressed. All of the subsets of our society that had gigantic stigmas attached to them are being addressed and things are getting better. And mental health is kind of a laggard in that. Why do you think so, that is, Guy? I think because it's a final thing. It's something that, that you don't necessarily recover from. It's something that is, and it's something that has impacted everybody's life in one way or another. The CDC says that one out of four people in the United States have a diagnosable mental illness. So next time you're on the elevator with three people, it's not mentally ill, it's you. Yeah, exactly. It's probably me. Exactly. Yeah. But you said something in that it's the last, I'm paraphrasing you, obviously, but yeah. it's the last frontier of being dealt with in society, the last frontier of illness. We deal with all kinds of illnesses. I'm surprised at this point, because this has been a bone of contention for decades, and it seemed to me, at least from my perspective, that the concept and the reality of mental illness is much more acceptable today than it was 10, 20 years ago. It absolutely is. And I think the most important thing that we've done is we have said, let's put the focus on the next generation. We're done. We have embedded in us our impressions, our thought processes, and our views on mental illness. But kids coming up may not. So there's been a ton of focus on acceptance with the next generation. And that seems to be working. And probably along the way, they're coming home and enlightening their parents and other adults into rethinking things. Because from the mouths of babes, we can get an entirely different way to see things. And I think that has a secondary benefit as well. I would think society in general would accept the fact that just as with other chronic illnesses, Mental illness is just part of life and part of society, and some people have, have it to a greater degree than others. No one's perfectly, quote-unquote, normal. That It's just part of life. Do you think we'll get, as you mentioned with the next generation or subsequent generations, do you think we'll get to that point where there'll just be an acceptance of it's just part of life? To some degree, but if somebody comes up to you ranting and raving and obviously mentally ill, you're going to react to that 
in a very different way than if somebody comes up to you with diabetes. Right, but so, that's only one part of mental illness, the ranting and raving. There's many others, including depression, which is not, hmm? does not pose a threat to you if the person next to you is depressed, but it may pose a threat to you if they're ranting and raving and may take violence out on you. So the, the place that I work in New York sees about 3,000 people a month. 80% of those people are destitute and starving and have no supports because their family came to them and said, we had to make a decision between supporting us and supporting you, and we had to choose us. And once you get cut loose from that family support, game over. Because that's when you just start crashing through floor after floor after floor, and you keep wondering when you're going to get to the bottom. And every time you think you do, you crash through another level. You also understand the family's point of view as well as the victim's point of view. I was, I'm part of the family. Yeah. <laughs> My daughter was diagnosed with schizophrenia at, at 16 years old. She turns 40 next week. My daughter's had 22 hospitalizations, and she, the longest one was two and a half years inpatient in a psych hospital. Her expectations for herself, for life, she grew up in Scarsdale. It's all about achievers, about the top of the mountain again. And all of her hopes and her dreams got dashed by that. She, she thought she might be able to play in the WNBA. She was team captain on our basketball team. It's her love. It's her passion. It continues to be. And then everything went away because of her mental health diagnosis. So, yeah, I'm the, I'm the family member, but I'm part of the 20% that stuck around and said, we're all in this together. And that's key, man. That is so key. If you've got somebody in your family that is mentally ill, you got to support them. You may not be able to support them directly, but cutting them loose is just the possible worst thing in the world. Remember Maslow in high school? Maslow's hierarchy. We started at level one, food and shelter, and then we grew step by step to level five self-actualization. And the people that I work with, the people that Choice works with, those 3,000 individuals, kind of challenge Maslow because what if level one isn't the first level with food and shelter? What if there's a level zero that's no food, no shelter, no supports, no nothing? How do you climb out from that? When you're standing there looking up and you, you can't even see the sidewalk because the curb that you're on is so gigantic and you don't know how to climb out. You know, that's the that's the obstacle. That's the challenge. And it's really hard and it's going to take a really long time. Part of it is we can't really help people with medications because we don't understand the brain that well yet. And, and there are a lot of medications that can help other illnesses to become more manageable, but we're not there yet in the mental health world. Well, that's a great way to leave it. We've talked about comedy and more importantly, mental health. And my guest has been comedian and motivational speaker Guy Fessenden performing in the Delirious Comedy Club at the Downtown Grand. For ticket information, go to deliriouscomedyclub.com. And for everything about Guy Fessenden, go to guyfessenden.com and you can follow him on Instagram and Facebook. Guy, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah.